Well, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Joshua 18 and 19, that's going to be our text this morning. But because of the length of it, I'm not going to read the whole text. I'll include portions of it and read through portions of it as we go along. But first, I want to just reflect for a moment on the subject of disappointment. Disappointment is an inevitability in life. Uh, You plan what seems like a perfect vacation, build it up in your mind, only to discover that it didn't quite work out the way that you had hoped. You marry uh, what seems like the man or woman of your dreams, only to find out that they're riddled with faults just like you are, and that marriage is hard. You switch to a new church, optimistic that this time you're going to appreciate everything about it, only to find out that it's filled with sinners just like the last one. New institutions are established, always with virtuous ideals, only to be degraded and lost over time. Nations set up new forms of government, hoping that this time it'll lead to utopia, only to find out that corrupt human beings can mess every single one up in spectacular ways. You see, disappointment is an inevitability in life, in this life. In a fallen world, things never turn out to be as good as we had hoped for. And this means it's also inevitable that human beings are always going to long for something better. That's what drives them, to keep trying new things, only to be disappointed again and again. One of the glorious things about the Bible is that it reveals and points us to the one hope of escaping the cycle of disappointment. It provides fallen human beings living in a fallen world with a hope of something better which will not disappoint. The text we've come to this morning, Joshua 18 and 19, is is just one place in the scriptures where you can see this theme come to the surface. And I want to show you what I mean by walking through first these chapters together and then reflecting upon this theme at the end. Remember, first of all, that we're in this section of the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 19, where the Lord was dividing up the land that Israel had conquered between its 12 tribes. And so far in chapters 13 and 17, the chapters we've looked at already, the land east of the Jordan River was divided up between two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And then we also saw how another two and a half tribes, Judah, Ephraim, and the other half of Manasseh, have already received portions of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan River. Now what's left then in chapters 18 and 19 
is for the rest of the land of Canaan to be divided up between the remaining seven tribes. Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. The first 10 verses of this section in chapter 18, verses 1 through 10, they set everything up. They tell us the story of how this took place, how the remaining land was divided up between the remaining tribes. When you look there in chapter 18, verse 1, you can see it says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, And set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now remember, when Israel first entered the land, this is all the way back in chapter 3, they had camped at a place called Gilgal. It was very near to Jericho, just across the Jordan River. And it must be that they set up the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, as it were, at that camp in Gilgal. And it seems to have stayed there throughout the rest of the conquest. But here, in chapter 18, verse 1, we see that the tabernacle was moved to a new location. It's called Shiloh. And that's where it would stay until the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines in battle and brought to their land in 1 Samuel 4. Something that you're going to hear about the next time either Ben Abrahamson or Paul Kalkinen preaches from 1 Samuel. Now, if you were to look at a map of the land of Israel, you would see, ah, that's why they chose Shiloh. It's smack dab in the very center of the land. And that central location made it possible, reasonable, for people from uh, up and down Canaan to come and to reach the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of the Lord. And um, that was important because Israel would often have to assemble in the presence of the Lord there at the tabernacle. Now, this is what we see happen in our text. Israel assembles at Shiloh before the presence of the Lord in the tent of meeting. And the occasion for this assembly is indicated there in verse 2. So if you look there, it says, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes, whose inheritances, whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So I mentioned this before. Seven of the twelve tribes of Israel had yet to receive their allotted portion in the land of Canaan from the Lord. And so Joshua called this assembly to remedy that fact. And he began by addressing this assembly of the nation. And in his address, Joshua indicated that there was a reason why the seven tribes had not received their portions in Canaan to this point. So look at verse 3. You'll see it there. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. So apparently the seven tribes had been delaying, putting off the task of finishing the conquest of Canaan. The land was mostly conquered so that it lay subdued before them. And so they'd become comfortable with whatever their present circumstances were. 
And they had put off the hard job of taking the rest of their inheritance that God had given them. Now that they were secure, now that they were in a comfortable in the space that they'd cleared out in the land, did they really need to keep on fighting? See, that fire of their previous faith-fueled zeal was now dying down so that it was smoldering embers of comfort-loving complacency. You know, this is something that we are all prone to in our sinful nature, isn't it? We are often in need of the Spirit of God to fan into flame again, to blow upon those fading embers of our love for Him and our zeal to obey Him. We should really make that a regular prayer, shouldn't we? That God would do that. So at this solemn assembly of the people, in the presence of the Lord at Shiloh, Joshua called the nation to shake off their complacency and take possession of the land, which, as he says in verse 3, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Now that phrase reminded Israel that this land was a heritage from Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had promised to give it to them way back to the patriarchs. Notice also that the way that Joshua's exhortation reflected the biblical compatibility here between God's sovereign grace and human responsibility. God had sovereignly given them the land. It was a gracious gift from God, but they were responsible to take possession of it. His sovereignty didn't negate their responsibility. Rather, their efforts to take the land were the very means by which God would bestow it upon them. And his gracious promise to their fathers was meant to motivate them to action, not make them complacent. Oh, God will take care of it someday. You know, that same principle applies to us as God's new covenant people, doesn't it? God, for instance, promised to graciously save us when we repented and believed the gospel. God promises to sanctify us completely as we strive to obey all that he has commanded. God promises to save his elect when we go forth and preach the gospel to all nations. God's sovereign grace, you see, does not negate our responsibility. Indeed, the opposite. It should motivate us to action. God has promised it. So let's go take it. Dale Ralph Davis put it this way. He said that God's promises are not intended as sedatives, but stimulants. Because he has often seen fit to accomplish his purposes through the spirit-empowered obedience of his people. Well, after urging the Israelites to stop delaying and take possession of the land which God had given them, 
Joshua laid out a game plan for them to follow. And we see it there in verses 4 through 6. So look what it says. Verses 4 through 6. Provide three men for each tribe, from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory in the north, and you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the descriptions here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. So the Israelites are supposed to send out people to survey the territory in Canaan, which still hadn't been allotted and determine the best way to divide it up into seven portions. And in the interest of fairness, you see he says there's to be three people from each of the seven tribes on this survey crew. And then they were to write everything down, which, by the way, is probably how we have these descriptions preserved for us in the text. And they were to bring those descriptions to Joshua at Shiloh, and he would cast lots in the presence of the Lord at the tabernacle to reveal God's decisions regarding which portion would go to which tribe. Now, it's interesting to note that once again, Joshua took care to account for the inheritance of all 12 tribes. You see, he goes on to add this note in verse 7. He says, The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage, And Gad and Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Now, what you see is just simply that when you look at this account, all 12 tribes, in fact, 13, if you divide Ephraim and Manasseh, are mentioned. And this is common, that every time the inheritance of of some tribes are mentioned, the others are too. And this practice of making sure that all 12 tribes are accounted for in the division of the land, it's repeated really throughout the book. So yes, the Old Covenant community did have diversity to it. It was made up of 12 distinct tribes who each inherited different portions in the land. But at the same time, the author is repeatedly emphasizing in various ways that they were still all one covenant people of God. And by the way, this is a point which is relevant to us in in the new covenant as well. Because the same thing is true of the church of Jesus Christ, and it's something that we can easily lose sight of. Because the church is diverse, isn't it? It's made up of people, for instance, from every tongue, tribe, and language, it's, it's also been fractured and, and separated into various independent churches or denominations of churches. And in the midst of that diversity, we can forget that we are, to the extent that we're talking about true believers, all one covenant people of God. We have to go back again and again to those famous words of Paul in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have to avoid an unhealthy tribalism, a tribalism which we actually see emerge in the history of the nation of Israel, where we sort of so identify with our distinct camps within the one body that we fail to recognize and appreciate our unity with true believers in other churches and denominations throughout the world and history. They too are part of the one body of Jesus Christ, the one bride of Christ, and he loves every true believer the same way that he loves us. So, you think about how you love people here at Cow Creek, but you have a special love for those that are part of your physical family, don't you? Well, there's a sense in which we ought to recognize that we ought to have a close, familial love for every person that we know who is a true believer in Jesus Christ because we are all members of the family of God with one Father and dwelt by one Spirit united to His one unique Son. Well, finally, this opening section concludes with an account of how the people did what Joshua commanded. So we read there in verses 9 and 10. If you look at the text, it says this. The men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns and seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. Now most of the rest of these two chapters, chapters 18 and 19, records the result of that apportioning process. It contains, in other words, a written account of the seven portions allotted to the seven remaining tribes as an inheritance in the land of Canaan. Now, the description of each tribe's inheritance begins and ends in a very similar fashion. So, for instance, if you look just at chapter 19, verse 1, you'll see an example of this. There it says, The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans. And then it ends a little bit later with this phrase, This was the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Simeon according to their clans. For the most part, those exact phrases with some variations open and close the description of each tribe's inheritance so that there is a a uniformity and repetition in the description here. Now, in between those opening and closing statements is a description of that tribe's inheritance and usually the description will include um, a a description of their territory, the borders of it, and also a list of at least some of the cities that are in that territory. So the territory and the cities. Now that basic pattern is repeated for each tribe, although you'll notice there are some deviations from the pattern with respect to certain tribes. Another thing to notice is, 
is that there is an order here to how the tribes were allotted their portion. One tribe was allotted their portion first, and then second, and then third, and so on. So you can look at the text, and if you follow your headings, you can see the first lot came out for the tribe of Benjamin, and their portion is described there in chapter 18, verses 11 through 28. The second lot came out for the tribe of Simeon, and their portion is described in chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. The third lot came out for the tribe of Zebulun, and their portion is described in 19:10 through 16. The fourth lot came out for the tribe of Issachar, and you see their portion described in chapter 19, verses 17 through 23. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of Asher, and their portion is described there in chapter 19, 24 through 31. The sixth lot came out for the tribe of Naphtali. You see their portion described in chapter 19, verses 32 through 39. And the seventh lot came out for the tribe of Dan. And their portion is described in chapter 19, verses 40 through 48. Now, as always, the description of each tribe's allotted portion contains names of places and lists of cities that we're unfamiliar with, right? I mean, if it was describing Shasta County, we'd be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know that. But we don't know anything about these places. And so for that reason, I'm going to put up a map to help you visualize what is being described in these three chapters. Sorry, I should have made it a little bit bigger, but hopefully you can get a sense there. That map, it contains the portions allotted to all 12 tribes. But you can see the portions allotted to Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan, especially if you have better eyesight. And the boundaries there, to the extent that we can identify the various places listed in the text, the boundaries on the map reflect what is being described in the text. Now, let me just leave that map up for the time being. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to walk through the descriptions of the boundaries and city lists for each tribe, but there are some features of it that I want to highlight for you. First, it's noteworthy the prominence of the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin is the last son born to Jacob. And the tribe that descended from Benjamin was always the smallest in number. And yet, not only did the first lot fall to the tribe of Benjamin, but the author spends the most time talking about their inheritance. So the 18 verses devoted to describing Benjamin's inheritance are more than double that devoted to any of the other six tribes. The description of Benjamin's inheritance is also more comprehensive than that of the other six tribes. So for instance, even though Benjamin, you can see on the map, hopefully, is right between Judah and Ephraim, there's his inheritance. It's a, it's a tiny plot of land, and yet the author gives the most comprehensive description of that territory compared to any of the other, tr- other tribes. Now, all of that points to a sort of primacy of Benjamin among the remaining seven tribes. Next to Judah and Joseph, in other words, Benjamin is the most next most significant tribe in Israel. And you might ask the question, then, why? Well, the answer is because 
of the role that Benjamin was going to play in the storyline of the Bible going forward. And you're thinking to yourself, well, how does Benjamin play into the story? Well, the first thing that should pop into your mind is the fact that the very first king in Israel was a man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin who lived in Gibeah, right there in the territory of Benjamin. But there's also something else about the tribe of Benjamin, which is actually right there in the description of their inheritance. So out of the 14 cities in the territory of Benjamin, which are listed there in verses 21 through 28 of chapter 18, among them is Jebus, that is Jerusalem. You see, not only was Benjamin's allotted territory located right strategically, as the text says, between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph, but the city of Jerusalem, which of course would later become the capital of the entire nation, even today, right? Jerusalem is the most important city in the nation of Israel, and it's right there in Benjamin's territory, not where you thought it was. Where did you think it was? In the tribe of Judah's territory, right? It's in Benjamin's. Now, what this means is that primarily because of the location of its territory and the presence of Jerusalem within it, the tiny tribe of Benjamin ends up playing an outsized role in the future of the nation. And this is why many centuries later, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, would say that as a Jew, he championed the fact that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. A second feature of this tribal inheritance, which we ought to take notice of, pertains to Simeon. Now, the portion allotted to Simeon is described in chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. And there, you see two things that are noteworthy. First, Simeon is not allotted any land, only cities. Second, the cities allotted to Simeon are scattered through the territory of another tribe, Judah. So the author mentions this. In verse 1, he says, Their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. You can see this depicted on the map as well by that circle labeled Simeon, way down in the south, that is right in the middle of Judah's territory. Now that circle, it doesn't actually indicate a portion of land that Simeon was allotted, but rather the general region where Simeon's 17 cities were largely located. But you ask yourself when you see this in the text, why did the Lord do this to Simeon? And there's really two parts to that answer. One answer is actually given right there in our text, chapter 19, verse 9. There it says, because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. In other words, one reason why Simeon's cities were stuck in the middle of Judah's territory is that, hey, Judah was flush for territory. They could afford to have Simeon there. But that still didn't explain why the Lord would deprive the tribe of Simeon from having any land and give them instead scattered cities in the middle of the tribe of Judah, which almost guaranteed that over time, the tribe of Simeon would largely disappear. 
being absorbed into the ranks of that greater tribe. So why did the Lord do this? Well, the answer is actually found way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 and 7. You might remember that chapter. It's famous because it contains the prophecies which Jacob gave concerning each of his 12 sons and their descendants. So in verses 5 through 7 of Genesis 49, Jacob uttered a prophecy concerning the descendants of two sons together, Levi and Simeon. And really, in order to understand that prophecy, you actually have to understand an earlier event that's recorded in the 34th chapter of Genesis. In that chapter, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, through Leah, and the full sister of Simeon and Levi, was raped by a prince of Shechem named Hamor. And when Simeon and Levi found out about it, they were incensed. And they hatched a plan to deceive the inhabitants of Shechem into being circumcised, promising that they would intermarry with them, only then to slaughter the entire city while they were healing from the circumcision. It was a cruel act. It was disproportionate vengeance, which greatly displeased Jacob, which elicited a very strong rebuke, which eventually led to the whole family having to move out of the region. Now, at that time, Jacob didn't take any action against his two sons, Simeon and Levi, for what they had done. But it finally came from the Lord in the prophecy at the end of his life concerning those two of his sons. There, Genesis 49, 5-7, the aged patriarch leaning upon his staff said, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now that last line, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel, that's the ultimate explanation for why the Lord allotted no territory to Simeon in Joshua 19, but only scattered cities in the midst of the tribe of Judah. It was a fulfillment of the curse which Jacob, their forefather, had uttered against those two sons and their descendants in Genesis 49.7. It was a judgment, in other words, from God upon the tribe of Simeon for their atrocious crime which their forefather committed against the Shechemites many centuries early. Now, when you stop and think about that, it reminds us soberly that God is going to fulfill every promise of grace and every purpose of judgment. And this is relevant to all humanity, isn't it? Because the Lord has purposed not only acts of judgment in history, but also a final day of judgment, which is coming upon the world when every human being will stand before him and give an account for their lives. And if they have not been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, 
They will receive from God a just sentence for every sin which they have committed. You know, the apostle John saw a vision of it, didn't he? In John 20, verses 11 through 12, he said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then it goes on to say, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. See, in that great and terrible day, all the sins that people have committed throughout history, which history has forgotten, which they have maybe forgotten, which people have kept hidden and lost sight of over time, will be brought out into the light by God, the omniscient one, and justly punished by him. And as we see in the act of judgment upon Simeon, which occurred hundreds of years after the original event, God is a perfect judge who does not forget the sins of his creatures, but will judge every one of them at the appointed time. And when you hear that, you can see why every sinner is in such desperate need of Jesus Christ, because God is not like us. We commit a sin, we feel bad about it at the time, and then we, over time we're like, eh, I don't even remember that. God is not like that. Every sin will be brought into the light and receive its perfect sentence. And so we need Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can save us from the judgment we deserve. Because God the Father in his incredible love for sinners has sent Jesus, his eternal divine son, to take that judgment in our place as his people when he died upon the cross. And he has willingly done it. The Father has laid upon him all our evil deeds and punished him for them in our place upon the cross. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He died so that we might live. So if you haven't done so already, hear that good news. Put your trust in the Son of God and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, and you will be saved from the punishment that you deserve from God for your sins. And you will enjoy eternal life with him instead. And then, having been so loved by God, be baptized. Join a local church where you can learn to express your love for Jesus by learning to obey all that he has commanded. Third, final thing to notice about these tribal inheritances is what happened with the tribe of Dan. Chapter 19, verses 40 through 48. So Dan is the last tribe to be allotted a portion in Canaan. And after describing the territory and the cities which God gave them, it says this, if you look at the text, in verse 47 of chapter 19. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Lashem. And after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lashem Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor. Now this is meant to be a shocking note. Here we have an entire tribe in Israel that basically failed to take possession of their land at all. 
course, we do know that some Danites, like Samson, did end up living there. But instead, they just moved to the far northern part of the country to settle in a city that they renamed Dan in the territory that was allotted to Naphtali. In fact, if you look at the map and you look up at Naphtali, you can see at the very top, it's a city called Dan. But if you look at Dan's territory, it's way down below a frame. This kind of chaotic behavior, rooted in really a crass unbelief and rebellion, was a foretaste of what is going to happen to Israel during the period of the Judges, the next book in the Bible. In fact, the story of the Danites moving to the north and settling in that city is told in greater detail in Judges chapter 18, if you want to go home and read it later today. What a sober reminder this is of how far we can end up straying from God in a very short time, by the way, when we fail to trust him and instead resolve that we are going to start doing whatever is right in our own eyes. When we reject God and reject his word to just start following our own ideas and our own sinful desires, it leads to moral chaos and destruction We see it in our own society today. Perhaps you've experienced it at times in your own lives. How desperately we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ who leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Because as the old King James rendering of Proverbs 13, 15 reminds us, the way of the transgressor is hard. So with that, we've come to the end of this section of the book, chapter 13 through 19, where the Lord is dividing up the land between the 12 tribes. We can take the map down now. But there's one more detail in the text that's worth mentioning here. Remember that the division of Canaan began in chapter 14, way back at the beginning, with the portion of land given to one individual, Caleb. Well, here we see that it ends in chapter 19, with the portion given to another individual, Joshua. So you read there, verses 49 to 50. If you look back at the text, it says, when they had finished distributing the several territories of land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. So now, those two former spies, Caleb and Joshua, who had encouraged Israel to take the land before they rebelled and wandered in the desert for 40 years, are now at long last receiving their portion in it, just as God had promised. And you know, in the person of Joshua, we have an example of the blessings which come from a life of faithfulness to the Lord. Throughout the book of Joshua, it's emphasized that he had demonstrated this consistent faith and trust in God that led him to to lead Israel to obey everything that God commanded. And now we see him at the end of his life receiving his reward, a personal portion in the promised land where he could live out his days in peace, enjoying the blessings of Yahweh. And it reminds us that of the promise that Jesus has given to every one of us as his disciples. That as we are faithful stewards, as in the parable of the talents, 
That we live our life taking what he's entrusted to us and by the power of the Spirit, not perfectly, but over the course of time, faithfully serving him with what he's entrusted to us, that at the end, we will hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What a glorious hope that is. And it's reflected Echoed, as it were, here in the life of Joshua. And may that motivate you to continue to serve Christ faithfully, just as Joshua did. Well, we've walked through the chapters, Joshua 18 and 19, and let's just close by reflecting on one more theme. You remember the theme of disappointment? Let me show you how the hope of escaping disappointment actually emerges here in these chapters. You know, the end of Joshua 19, it represents a significant turning point, really, in all redemptive history. So if you think back, you know, centuries and centuries before this, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord had told the man Abraham when he arrived in Canaan from the land of Ur, to your offspring, I will give this land. Centuries and centuries later, now in the book of Joshua, the Lord has kept that promise. First, he enabled Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to conquer the land of Canaan. Then he divided it up between them, giving them each a portion in it. And in chapter 1951, it marks the end of that process. It closes by saying this, so they finished dividing the land. It's a major turning point in the whole history of redemption. And it should have been a glorious occasion. The land had been the hope of Israel, and now it's theirs. Except as you reach this part of the book, don't you feel it? The grand fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise has been a little bit of a letdown. There are some in Israel, like Caleb and Joshua, who have been faithful to God. They're enjoying the promised land. But the nation as a whole has really failed to do it. Even Israel's greatest tribes, those of Judah and Joseph, didn't completely drive out the Canaanites from their territory. Some still remained among them. The tribe of Dan, they lost their territory altogether. And what about Simeon? He's just scattered among the territory of his brother Judah. Seems likely to disappear over time. It all leaves a sort of a bad taste in our mouths as readers And like so many other things in life, we come to this point and we see that Israel's conquest of Canaan, which the story had been building up to to this point, is a disappointment. And it leaves the reader looking for something better. And in that way, do you see, like everything else in the Old Testament, it's like a signpost. You know, you're traveling to the city that has no problems and you get to where you think it is and There's a sign saying it's a head still. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who has given us the better thing that Israel's conquest of Canaan left wanting. You remember Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that Christ has become the mediator of a new covenant, which is a better covenant than the old covenant which God had made with the nation of Israel because it's based on better promises. And one of these better promises is articulated in chapter 11, verse 16, where it speaks of believers 
who have died in faith throughout the years, inheriting finally a better country in Hebrews eleven sixteen. And we know that this country is better because it's a heavenly one. It's a country where we will live in a city that has foundations, a permanent city whose builder and maker is God. Namely, that heavenly Jerusalem described in chapter 12 of the book. And as the author of Hebrews indicates in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, when we enter that better country, we will experience the rest which Israel failed to obtain in Canaan under Joshua. We will participate in God's own Sabbath rest in a full and final way. What is this better country we're speaking of? Well, I think there is very good reason to confidently assert that that better country which the author of Hebrews was envisioning is nothing other than the new creation described in Revelation 21 and 22. That is our eternal resting place, the ultimate promised land to which our greater Joshua, Jesus, has secured for us through his conquest of sin and death and is now leading us through the wilderness of this life. And one day, he will bring us into it, that better country. And when we take possession of that better country, that heavenly country, and that city with foundations, unlike Israel's possession of Canaan, which leaves us disappointed. We will not be disappointed there. So you see, as we come to the end of Joshua 19, and we feel a bit let down by the failure of Israel to enjoy their inheritance in the land of Canaan, we ought to be reminded. That's right. Because it's pointing us to better things that have come and are coming in our Lord Jesus Christ. Things which will not disappoint. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us to Jesus Christ and that he has established a better covenant with better promises than those that we see in the old covenant with Israel. And one of these promises being a better country, and we thank you that Christ has done everything necessary to secure our inheritance, our portion in that better country, and that he, by his power, is protecting our faith and bringing us to that better country, that we are even now called citizens of the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh God, we thank you and we long for the day when Christ will return to raise the dead and judge the wicked and make all things new and bring us to that place that will not disappoint where every desire will be satisfied and every hope fulfilled and no wrong will be done there or remembered for eternity to come. Please set these things before us. Our Lord Jesus, fill us with a love for him. Help us to walk every day with that hope before us that we might continually to live faithful to Christ by the power of his indwelling spirit. We pray it in his name. Amen.